Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. Welcome, Pete, to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. Good to see you today. Thanks, Doug. It's really good to be here. Yeah, I've been uh, looking forward to our conversation. Ever since we had that first lunch meeting a couple months ago, I was just really excited about the opportunity to talk to you some more. You're now settled here in Reno and, and getting situated? We are settled here in Reno. We, we actually just moved into a house that we bought a few months ago and are, uh, are kind of going through all the, the, the fun of unpacking and furnishing and, and all of that, but uh, really, really excited about the neighborhood that we're in and, and, and Reno too. Excellent. Well, you fall into the category of one of the newest uh, Nevada residents, you know, coming, selling your company and then coming here from California. One of the things that I'm just really excited about is just how, based on our first conversations, you really rolled up your sleeves and said, hey, you know, how can I contribute to the community? And yeah, it's just a really great way of showing up in, in our community and, and helping bring your experience. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Give, give the audience a little bit about uh, about who you are and how you ended up here in Reno. Yeah, so I, I don't know how far back you, you want me to go here, but I grew up I grew up on the East Coast in the western part of New York State, which is which is maybe a little more culturally similar to the Midwest than it is the actual the actual coast. Um, so maybe an hour outside of Buffalo or so. And after graduating high school in, in my little town, I moved to Cleveland, Ohio, and that's where I went to college. I went to Case Western Reserve University. And uh, after four years there, I was lucky enough to graduate and, and moved on to grad school at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And you study computer science at, at both those, right? You have a master's in computer science? That's right. Yes. I studied computer science in both places. And and actually went to the University of Illinois with the intention of, of getting a PhD and realized pretty quickly that that's, I don't think I'm cut out for that. And <laughs> fortunately made that, made that discovery pretty early on. And, and so I left after two years with a master's degree in computer science. And, and that's when I moved out to the, the West. So I uh, was ex- really thrilled to get an offer from Google, uh, which at the time was just my dream job. I was so excited about it. I moved to San Francisco and I started at Google in 2006 as a, an associate product manager and uh, just had some really wonderful formative experiences there. I met some really, really amazing people. And after a few years, I left and with my fellow Google product manager, Dan Soroker, started a company called Optimizely. And we uh, we started that company in 2010. We went through Y Combinator that year, and uh, that's a that's a startup incubator uh, in, in Mountain View, and and after a lot of ups and downs, we uh, we actually sold the company last year uh, to a great company called Episerver, and you know at, at this point that's that kind of brings us to now. Yeah, congratulations! I mean, you know, to go through the full entrepreneurial journey from idea through funding through you know growth and sale. I mean, that's that's the full journey. Uh, and to do it on really on your, was this your first company that you started or? It, was... it really depends on how you count. So we, very early on in our entrepreneurial journey, we actually had, you know, Optimizely was our third company. So we, we ran what, what, what I can now call several experiments, several failed experiments before that. And uh, so we, we actually, uh, it's kind of an interesting story how Optimizely came about. So we, Dan and I met at Google, we were both, uh, part of this group of young associate product managers there. And, and 
very quickly discovered that we just had this shared interest in entrepreneurship. We both, we just love building stuff. We got really excited about that and, and decided at one point that we wanted to, to leave and start a company together. And this was in, I think, late 2007. And right about that time, uh, then Senator Barack Obama came and spoke at the Google campus. He did like a Q&A with wow. uh, then CEO Eric Schmidt. And, and it was amazing. Dan and I both went and I remember uh, being really, really impressed, obviously. And, and I think Dan had a, a much more extreme reaction than I did. So he, three weeks later, quit his job at Google, moved to Chicago. He slept on his friend's floor and he went on to become the director of analytics on the Obama presidential campaign. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think his title was director of new media analytics. Uh, and he, he likes to joke that his, this new media label, they put on anything that they didn't really understand. <laughs> which surely it's kind of amazing to think about, but that was only, that was 13 years ago now, 14, I guess. And this was still a time when the idea of using the internet and social media to help win uh, a political campaign was, was totally new, you know, and uh, Dan was an example of somebody who came from a world where that stuff is in the water. You know, that's just how, how Google worked and, and, and was transplanted into a world where a lot of that stuff was new and, and not, not generally well understood. And uh, he, through the course of the campaign, uh, did a lot of work to, to help modernize and, uh, and build out their digital infrastructure. And one of, the, one of the practices that he brought to the campaign was something called A-B testing. And an A-B test is it's a really simple idea. If you have a website and you want to make it better, and you've got several different ideas for how to do that, an A-B test uh, is just a really simple experiment that you can run that will actually give you data on which of your ideas performs the best. And we can talk about some of the, some of the experiments they ran on the campaign, if that's interesting. But, you know, after fast forward through 2008, we all know how the campaign turned out. They broke a lot of records for online fundraising. And at that point, Dan moved back to the Bay Area and he and I started working together. So we kind of had, we put our plans on hold when he moved out to the to Chicago. And when he came back, that's when I left Google and we started working. And you asked if this was, if Optimize was our first company. Uh, it wasn't. Our first company was a company called Carrot Sticks. It was an online learning tool for young kids. And uh, that it was a lot of fun. Uh, we learned an awful lot and we made very little money. And the, as you do sometimes in those as first one couple. does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The second company was just dumb. It's uh, it was one of those things that, that, you know, on paper sounds like a great idea and then turns out to be a terrible idea, uh, you know, as, as so many do. And uh, but that that idea was enough to get us into Y Combinator. And yeah, so we, we started this is like a Twitter referral business. This is the second thing. And and we got into Y Combinator and then before the Y Combinator season even started, we started building and we got a few early customers and we just recognized that this also wasn't going anywhere. And at this point, it had been a year. We, we had sort of left, started with a very, I would say, lofty sense of what we were capable of. And over the course of that year had been kind of ground down into to submission and right, you know, the recognition that, that our ideas were, weren't really as good as we thought maybe they were. And, and at that point... Dan kind of came back and said, you know, this, this A-B testing thing that, you know, obviously we did all the time at Google and, and, yeah. and that we then did it in the campaign, it was really hard to do, uh, but it was really valuable. I wonder if we can make it easier. And that was really the founding thesis for our company. Yeah. What an interesting, I mean, to have it, the idea of inspired at Google and then tested on the presidential campaign 
and then to kind of have it macerate and nurture and then go through Y Combinator. Did you pivot while at Y Combinator? Or did That's right. You kind of, yeah. So you pivoted while you're at this, while at YC. Yeah, we pivoted early on during the Y Combinator season class. I can't remember how you'd call it, but it's kind of funny, actually. There were, I think, 17 different companies in our batch in a batch, that's how, that's how you refer to it. Uh, so there's 17 different companies in our batch and there was actually one other company doing the exact same thing that we had, you know, our Twitter referral thing. And this was kind of right around the time that the Twitter API, like Twitter was exploding. They had just yeah. launched their API. And so we kind of went in and, and on a collision course with this, with this company. But at the same time, we're sort of realizing that at least for us, there wasn't much opportunity there. And we ended up pivoting the second or third week, I think of the, of the season. Wow, interesting. That, what a you know what a coincidence you had two at the same time. I mean, I, that's pretty pretty rare. I mean, that was early days of YC too, wasn't it? I mean, it, it didn't have the reputation. I mean, I'm sure it had a great reputation, but it it's not kind of the behemoth that it is now. It's like this certainly number one L accelerator in the country. And I mean, they had a lot of cachet. I, I guess I'm just saying it, there was kind of early days. I'm not sure they'd totally worked out all of the the formulations for how to actually turn this thing into what it is today. I, you know, that was, that was one thing that really struck me about Paul and Jessica and, and the other partners. It just seemed like they were just like voraciously learning all of the time. And they were at this point, we were, they were four years in, I think five years in like the first YC class was, was I think 06 or 05. And, and they were still, you know, they still approached this with so much energy. I felt so lucky to have been part of a class that small and and to have had that kind of direct exposure to, to PG and, and Jessica and, and and the other partners because they were just amazing. I mean, it was it's so clear in retrospect that it's it, it's the energy and, and the culture that they built that made Y Combinator so great. It's such an advantage, you know. All of the companies I started, um, we didn't have anything like that. I mean, I was in the medical device field, and you know, they didn't really even have accelerators for that at that time. But now that they have that, it just it just gives you such a leg up. I mean, I I just remember having to learn so many things the hard way that I think we could have learned the less hard way in through a program and it's never easy but uh, like you said it it was thinking about you know how humbling it is you think you have these great ideas and you go out into the world and then the world kind of humbles you uh, (laughs) along the way yes it does but still learning that definitely better to have that learning experience with people that have been there done that and that you know and what a great group to to go participate in i mean this is one of those things that we continue to try and build capacity in in Reno for our own accelerators, but then also just helping any entrepreneur that, that wants to get into YC or Techstars or 500, any, you know, whatever's the right thing for them, just try and help create pathways. Because I don't know the exact statistic, but it's something like, you know, 90% of entrepreneurs fail and then 70% that are in an accelerator don't fail. It's a, it's a pretty big disparity, right? Like it's just better if you can be in an accelerator. I wouldn't be surprised if there's at least some difference. That's that's a pretty stark difference. It's a pretty stark difference. I mean, it, maybe it's maybe it's not that they don't fail. They don't make it quite a bit further than yeah. they would. And they, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I definitely can't, looking back, can attest to not only with Y Combinator, but just across the board, the amount that we benefited from the generosity of the people around us it's touching to think about. And it's, it's one of the things that I was so, that I was so, most surprised about after we started working on our own was just that there are so many other people, you know, with nothing really to gain f- from helping you that, that come out of the woodwork just because they're excited about what you're doing. And they're excited, you know, about, about people out there trying things and, and, and taking risks and, and they're willing to help. And that was one of the reasons that I 
was excited about about try, at least trying to do the same thing here in Reno because of how much that how much that helped us. You know, honestly, that is one of the reasons why I do the work that I do. Like I realized when we were starting our medical device company, people would just open up doors for you in the valley and for and take nothing. Like they didn't ask for anything. They just because someone had done it for them. And that was that was the cultural normative there. And when we first came to Reno and started working on the ecosystem here, that was not the cultural normative. It was like pay to play or, you know, keep your cards close to your chest or even kind of like the mining thing. Like, hey, well, I'll hang out at the bar. But if you get on my land, I'm going to shoot you. Like, you know, like it just was a little extreme. But but it was not like let's put our hands together and be collaborative and put the entrepreneurs, you know, objectives in front of our own. And that has transformed dramatically. But I think that that is that. There's probably no place else in the country that that has that like Silicon Valley did. I don't know what it's like today, but definitely when you were there, I was just at the tail end of my medical device stint in 2007, 2008. That was very much the ethos that you that you were operating in. Yeah, I mean, for all its problems, and there are and there are many. I think one of the magical things about Silicon Valley is just the sheer density of people that are are working in as entrepreneurs that are working around entrepreneurs. And, and the end result is that any given problem you run into, there's, there's guaranteed to be somebody relatively close to you that's been through the same thing and can can offer you advice. Yeah, it's, you know, I, for a long time, we we're, we're talking about the importance of startups in our community. And, you know, people's experience with startups here are these like small companies that need a lot of help, and they don't create a lot of economic impact. And then you go to a place like, Silicon Valley, and there's nothing but startups. I mean, obviously you have the big five and you've got, you know, some of them, but fundamentally that is the economy. And it's so interesting to say, well, like, like, just look over there. This is what we, I mean, we'll never be that, but this is what could happen. This is the energy that we're trying to create here. And so it's just, it's great when, you know, people that have that experience are willing to come over here and then bring that same, the same values of being an entrepreneur first and collaborating and and trusting people and bringing your knowledge forward. So, yeah, it was just, you know, I appreciate that that's, you, you got your, you cut your cloth in YC, which is a great place to, to, to be from and then to bring those values forward. Well, cheers. And, um, you know, I, I, it's interesting you say like, Greeno will never be that. I don't know. I'm, I don't, I don't want to weigh in on that directly, but I am pretty long Reno and I'm, I'm pretty long software tech and the internet still. And I think if you look back over the history of technology, uh, one consistent theme is almost everybody underestimating, you know, the potential of the internet or, or basically pick a technology, almost anybody un- underestimate the potential of that technology by several orders of magnitude. And I don't think it's unreasonable to think we're still basically in that state, you know, and, and the idea that everyone did this before, and I, I don't think this is what you're insinuating here, but the idea that there's kind of the zero sum game between different, between different locales or different communities I think is I think is false. I think Silicon Valley can still continue to grow, and I'm sure that it will. Whilst uh, places like Reno, emerging tech hubs, there's an awful long runway for for these places to grow into their own right as well. Totally, I completely agree with you. I guess what you know what I what I maybe I'm reacting to is everybody wants to be like Silicon Prairie or Silicon this. <laughs> and my general feeling on this is that we want to be the best versions of ourselves. And a diversified economy with a strong uh, entrepreneurship and strong technology sector helps us get to that. And you know, we won't, we can't be Silicon Valley just like we can't be Phoenix or Denver. We're going to be our version of that. And and how do we bring those 
those values here so that we can support the next generation of entrepreneurs. So yeah, definitely, you know, I, I'm, I'm all about how do we become the best versions of ourselves and diversify away from what we have always known. And I think we're very much in the throes of that. And, you know, obviously COVID has accelerated a lot of that by a lot of people coming over, but, you know, I think we still have a long way to go. You know, just what I see, just in terms of computer science, something, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but I have a computer engineering degree. Um, so I cut my, you know, I, I spent a lot of years as a developer and just to see the level of computer science they're teaching in this community, it's like, it's just not quite there yet. I mean, the school district is doing a great job and they're doing the best they can, but you've, you've got years and years of computer science and technology not being part of the economy. So people just didn't even think that that was a thing. I mean, even as recently as a couple of years ago, we were trying to get the state to put some support behind computer science training. And they're like, well, show us the demand. I'm like, it's the number one most in-demand job in the world. <laughs> like, okay, maybe we don't have a lot of it here, but we that's what we want. So we got to start to make some investments. So, it, you know, it's, it's this evolution that's happening. But I, I do think that COVID has accelerated that dramatically now, just with remote work and all of that. But Totally agree. I'm an example of that, I think. Yeah, totally you're an example of that. So, you know, it, it wasn't just I went to Y Combinator and 10 years later we sold the company for, <laughs> you know, Millions and millions of dollars. I mean, there's a lot along the way. I mean, you you know, obviously you've pivoted a couple of times. You've been through the experience. So let's, you know, what were some of the big challenges you faced in taking Optimizely from two of you to how big did you guys get when before you exited? I think we were, in terms of headcount, I think we were around 350. Uh, don't quote me on that. Uh, as of mid last year, uh, before the sale. And, uh, and yeah, you're right. There was... There was a lot of stuff that happened in between those two bookends uh, of that journey. <laughs> You're like a ten-year success overnight, right? Is that isn't that how it goes? Yeah, it's. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, it's. We went through all the high, you know you hear about the roller coaster. We went through all the highs and and, and many of the lows. And I think a lot of seasoned entrepreneurs are, are probably well familiar with at this point. And you know, pick it pick an area, and, and I'm happy to describe some of the challenges that we walked into. I think. It's such a general thing, like the challenge, you know, what are some of the big challenges? Like, I guess like for us is a, a you know, one of the highest levels, w you know, what Optimizely does is we build experimentation software. We, we build software that helps companies run experiments. And having seen this play out inside many different organizations, large and small, I can say that the ability to experiment, the ability to do that at scale can be transformational to an organization. If you can truly, throughout your organization, empower anybody in the organization to try a new idea, to run an experiment, and to use data to guide the decision about that, you will perform better as a business. You'll perform better as a nonprofit. But the work involved in getting to that point is substantial. And as a, you know, as a software vendor, we can only do some, some part of that. And I think one of the challenges that we had since the beginning of, of the company is that selling experimentation software is a little bit like selling gym memberships okay. in the sense that it is, it's a lot easier to get somebody to sign up for a gym membership than it is to get them off the couch every, every other day. And, uh, and the reality is that in order to get you know, the results on the, you know, on the box cover, uh, you need to get off the couch every other day and you need, you know, building a, making changes in your culture, building a culture takes a lot of work. It takes discipline. It takes intention, it takes leadership. And so, you know, the, I think the end result of that is that one of the things we struggled with over the years was in, you know, retaining 
retaining a, a high enough percentage of our customers, right? We, we had many customers that were fabulously successful with our software, but many others who, you know, tried it on and really couldn't get that motion down. And so maybe one of the constant, one of the themes of our company as we were growing and scaling was trying to understand better, you know, who was going to be successful with, with software like, like ours and, and how to help them get there, right? And so expanding from, you know, just selling a, a piece of software that you could come to our website and swipe a credit card for to making the sales process more involved and more hands-on and more high touch. And so we could really kind of partner early with a customer and make sure that we're, we have, you know, our goals and incentives are aligned here and uh, to offering professional services, right? In addition to the subscription to our software uh, to, to help companies go through the organizational changes, the strategic changes required to really build that experimentation culture. For sure. I mean, it's, I mean, what you're talking about is really a mindset shift. I mean, I, I noticed this in myself, you know, when you, the, the idea that, you know, maybe I don't, I don't know the right answer is the first place to start. And that takes some courage sometimes, especially if you're a leader, right? You know, sometimes people look at you and they're like, they want to know what the answer is. And if, and if your answer is, well, I don't know, let's go figure it out. At least for me, I thought initially that would be, you know, scary to people, but that's the, I mean, that's an entrepreneurial lens, right? Like you're going out into the world, I have this idea. I don't know if it's right or not, but let me go test that. But I can imagine that that's not everybody's, like everybody, people don't wake up and go, gosh, I'm, I don't know the answer to this. I'm going to go test it all day long. I think a lot of people have a different way that they approach it. And so fundamentally, you have to align with people's mindset of, hey, we let's go experiment to figure out what the world really has to tell us. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Just getting the cold? I think that's spot on. And, and I think, you know, most most entrepreneurs that have been through the, the early the early stage rigors understand the idea of experimentation because that's that's what you're doing right you're trying something and if it works it works and if it doesn't like you move on you know and you keep you have to you have to kind of combine and balance this vision of of what can be with the data you're getting from from the world right and and do your best to see the world as it is the incentives really change and the motion really changes when you when you have a larger organization, right? And you have all sorts of power dynamics that contribute to how decisions get made. And there's this old saying uh, in experimentation circles that most decisions in most organizations get made using the hippo, which is which stands for the highest paid person's opinion. Yep, there you go. <laughs> and so, totally. you know, and and the idea of the idea of kind of building into the fabric and the structure of your organizational hierarchy. This idea that leaders don't have to be right. What leaders have to do is encourage their teams to use data to prove them wrong. Uh, is that's there's a lot of friction that you run into that, and oh, there are sure. organizations that have done such a good job at this. And I think one of the best is is Amazon, and you can see it when you look at when you read Jeff Bezos's writing or when you, when you hear him talk, the amount that he talks about experimentation, and he'll do things like he'll kind of. He'll, he'll talk sort of almost lovingly about how many billions of dollars Amazon has, has made it, you know, or has lost in failures, right? And that is, it sounds like a humble brag, but I don't think it is. I, I think actually that's like a very deliberate signal that he is sending to the tens of thousands, now hundreds of thousands of people that work for him, that failure is okay, right? And that, you know, that culture within Amazon led to them, you know, going from a, an online book retailer to an online everything retailer oh, sure. to basically, you know, building the infrastructure that, uh, yeah, <laughs> world domination, more or less, right? Like the Kindle, right? And like all these successes, like for each one of these successes, you can point to something like, the, was it the, the phone? I can't remember, the Fire Phone or, you know, like the, 
there's been plenty of things that they've tried that have just fallen over almost right away. And that's kind of, that's by design. And leaders like Jeff Bezos like understand that, right? They understand that failure, even sometimes public embarrassing failure is part of the creative process. And if totally. you don't allow for failure, you also are, are implicitly not allowing for creativity and your company is going to stagnate. Yeah. W- one of the key leadership things I had to learn was, you know, you don't really fail. You just don't get the result that you were looking for. And what you get is more important, which is learning. And so when you can embrace that, you know, that, that takes a, some humility. But when you can embrace that, then that's how you move forward. And that's how you develop. And in, I, I see this sometimes with first time founders, you know, nobody thinks their baby's ugly, right? Like they have this great idea and it's beautiful. And like, and I'm like, well, you're not really trying to go prove that your baby is beautiful. You're trying to go figure out if, you know, how your baby fits into the world. And that may be, I mean, maybe this is a great example, but, <laughs> you know, like, Go out and ask a bunch of questions and then learn, oh, maybe baby's cuter with this thing on or this thing or whatever. It's the, the point is you're not trying to prove your idea. You're trying to learn what the market wants. And it's a and it's a shift. And so often that was like a mind blower for some early it was a mind blower for me. Um, and I and I also I resonate with how hard it is to do these experimentations, even on something as simple as you know, single web pages or on individual Google ads or I you know, it's not easy to get a b test done i mean you can kind of do it but i've we've attempted to do this multiple times with limited success and you know sometimes you can jump to conclusions too quickly is if you don't set up the test correctly so i would assume that you you know really helped set up rigorous testing so you had good data good analysis that type of thing we did our best and actually there's a whole another thread we can talk about that has to do with how our software uh, analyzes experiment results and and actually learning a couple of years into our journey that the approach that we were taking, which was more or less the standard approach to doing experiment statistics was actually broken for the kinds of experiments that our customers were, were running. And it's, you know, I, I don't want to go into, I don't want to go into too much detail here because it's not very interesting or, or it's kind of boring, but um, basically like the standard analysis framework for running experiments was invented now more than a hundred years ago, actually by an employee at Guinness, at least this is the, this is maybe the, the, the person who, who did the most to popularize it. Uh, it's called the student t-test. And this person was uh, trying to come up with an easy, repeatable way of assessing, assessing the quality of uh, fertilizer crops, basically a whole bunch of variables in Guinness's business and came up with this test. And, and the test that you can use to determine statistical significance through what's called a p-value it's built in, it comes with several assumptions built in. And those assumptions made sense a hundred years ago, you know, when it would take you six months to like, you know, it's like you're planting field A with fertilizer A and field B with fertilizer B. And it takes you six months to gather data on, you know, how tall your crops get, but they don't make sense in a world where you're, you're, you have analytics that are real time and you're continuously collecting data. And basically the end result is that you can use these standard techniques that everybody uses in ways that seem very intuitive, but actually lead to a whole bunch of analysis errors. And this is this is still a, a pretty counterintuitive thing. And so actually, after kind of observing how people are using our software and comparing that with the assumptions built into the statistical framework that we're using, we ended up uh, shifting and we partnered with some statisticians at Stanford and developed an approach that uses more modern techniques. Like when I say modern, I mean like roughly World War II era techniques yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that allow you to, it's called sequential testing. It allows you to kind of continuously monitor the data you're collecting in an experiment in order to make a decision. Uh, but yeah, that was just one of many lessons learned of, 
something we thought we understood turns out we didn't understand at all. Did that ultimately create a challenge for your business model? I mean, you know, the making your sales cycle longer or just, I mean, it sounded like you had maybe higher churn or how did, did you, did you guys ever fully crack that one? Did you f- figure out how to, how to solve that problem or? Uh, the, the, going back to the gym membership thing? Well, or yeah, coming back to the gym membership. Yeah. yeah going, kind of going back to how. Did we ever crack that? We definitely made a lot of improvements. That was, that was, you know, when I look at 10 years and I, and I try to summarize 10 years, you know, in, in a couple sentences, I think that was probably the biggest challenge that we faced as an organization. And we worked very hard over the years and, and made a lot of changes to our approach and our software in order to try to, to, to squash that one. I don't think we ever really fully solved it. We made a lot of improvements and, and indeed, you know, we, we grew the business to that we were, but it, it was substantial, substantial size business. <laughs> yes. But never really fully cracked that. Well, you're, you're really talking about behavior change on top of that, right? I mean, that's part of it is I got to imagine that adds complexity to the sales cycle and, and all that. So just one, but that's an inherent challenge in what you're selling so that, you know, you're going to always have to work through to overcome that. What about, you know, you, you grew to 350 people in the Bay Area during a time that was pretty competitive. I mean, you had the rise of, you know, Google and Facebook and Twitter and Apple. How, how were you able to hire and retain good people? I mean, 350 is a good, good size company. Was that, and that was it mostly based in the Bay Area? Uh, no, it was actually, we had offices all over the world, in part because it's so hard, so hard to hire in the Bay Area, but, but in, in, a, in other large part, because we were a global company, we served customers all over the world, we needed, we needed offices near our customers. But yeah, I mean, how did we, how did we do that? It, it's really hard. Recruiting in the Bay Area is, recruiting is hard. That was, that was kind of one of these things as, a, as a, an early stage entrepreneur that I just totally misunderstood. Like, there are so many things where I can... And I'm sure this is still true, right? You know, where I, I can point to a, a period in time where I was like, yeah, I got that figured out. And then I can point to a period in time, like not long after that point, where I was like, boy, I don't understand that at all. I don't know what's going on here. Yeah. And recruiting is one of those, is one of those things where when I was at Google, I did, I did hundreds of interviews of candidates, right? I, of product management candidates while I was there. And, you know, I got pretty good at the Google style interview. And by the end of my tenure there, I kind of had this idea that like, okay, this hiring thing, I kind of got it down. I, I know what I'm doing. And totally, totally missed in all of that, that like the hard part about hiring is not like asking the right tricky gotcha question in an interview. It's like getting somebody to even return your, your email, right? Like when you're Google, especially back then, like your the brand name Google was so powerful that they just, they like they're flooded with resumes. Like the biggest hiring challenge Google had at that point was like batting away this like constant (laughs) deluge of resumes, you know, vomiting all over the company all the time. You know, when, whereas when you're a a brand new startup, nobody's heard your name. Everybody you're trying to hire is super smart and has lucrative offers from a whole bunch of other places. And you have to try to convince them to turn all of those offers down and take a bet on, on what you're doing. And that's a, that's a fundamentally different challenge. And this is something I've seen in, in I saw it a lot myself. And I've seen it in a lot of entrepreneurs that come from larger organizations is you get this distorted view of what, what the problems are because you've spent your whole, you know, your whole existence in an organization that has already to, to some extent solved the hardest problem. Like the only reason Google existed at that point is because it solved all the hardest problems. And so, you know, spending three years at Google uh, gives you this false sense of of what what the real world problems are, and you learn pretty quickly after you know after an experience like that how how much you have to learn. 
Oh yeah, no, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I can totally resonate with what you're saying. I can imagine the compl- you you just forget that you have this big Google sign behind you, and people are just coming towards you, which is you know, <laughs> yeah. optimized. Like, exactly. And you're like, hey, exactly. hey, you know, exactly. we're over here. We're gonna change the world. This you know? big Google sign behind you, and everyone's coming at you, and you're like, wow, I must be hot shit. And it's just totally. this giant blinking Google sign behind you. <laughs> That's funny. Is it about tapping into people's intrinsic motivation? Did you guys have a core values? I mean, clearly, you know, you yeah, yeah, you can't compete with their their dining system either. Like, you can't, you know, you can't offer free sodas and and you know bars when they've got a five star chef. So how do you how do you do that? We didn't even try to compete symmetrically, uh, which is that's another start a tattoo to figure out ways to compete asymmetrically because the only way is they survive. And, and so one of the things that we did early on, one of many things I credit my, my co-founder's approach, I credit my co-founder for, for the, for the deliberate approach that we took to this. And I think it paid off a lot was we tried to be really deliberate and intentional about the culture that we were building. And we, uh, so we, you know, maybe a year and a half or so into our, journey, we had a small team, less than 20 people. And we sent an email out to everybody just saying, what do you appreciate about working here? What do you like about working here? And we kind of took that and we condensed it down into an acronym uh, that we called Optify. And that stood for ownership, passion, trust, integrity, fearlessness, and transparency, where the, wow. the, the last letter of transparency is the Y in Optify. And it was, and we spent a lot more time thinking about that. We put together documents and a, and a deck, uh, kind of talking about how what each of these values meant and giving examples. And and Dan was was really passionate about this. And and what I saw later on was that this. I don't think this was a prescription to people uh, telling them how to behave. Like it wasn't a prescription for behavior. It was a prescription for hiring. You know, and it was it's when you when you try to scale a, a company at some point as a founder you you lose the direct involvement in hiring decisions and you know, like the earliest culture in, a, in a, an organization comes from just the, the first few employees and, and i think the founders and, and at a certain point you kind of lose control of that and it's scary for as a founder to to cross that threshold and the work that we put into codifying what it meant to be an optonaut uh, that's what we called ourselves uh, and and the expectations were in terms of, of behaviors and attitudes and approaches to solve a problem and working with each other, I think, you know, A, led to great hiring decisions. Like we just had such a wonderful team, and, and I credit that with a lot of it, um, but also was attractive to people, right? Because it actually spelled out in detail exactly who we wanted to be and showed, you know, candidates that we were intentional about who we wanted to be. And that's very attractive to, well, to a lot of the folks we hired, and I, I credit that with, with the fact that we managed to hire some of those amazing people I've ever worked with. Sure. No, I, look, I, what you said totally resonates with me. I mean, you, you, you codified your core values in an acronym, which I love, and then created language around that. And, you know, that's, that's the definition of culture. I mean, it, startups in many ways is probably, I don't mean this in a negative way, are, are kind of cultish. In a way, you kind of you need them to be right because you're asking to for to do the impossible in many ways. You're trying to go from zero to one, long hours. You know you, who knows what's going to happen, and then so to me, what it sounds like you did is you really codified a really amazing culture with a set of very clear core values. And to me, I look at that as filter criteria. So like, am I an optonaut or not? Right, and that's a really clear. I mean, the no is the second best answer. So if that doesn't resonate with you, great, go over here. You know, awesome. if it does. Awesome. We want you on board. And 
I see, you know, people, I think often, and I'm, I'm a, I'm a hardcore core values person, but think that this is just like a mission and vision you put on the wall and it's just this thing you do, but it's at the, at the foundation of startups, in my opinion, and all of the quality companies I see have these very clearly defined cultures, which I think you very clearly articulated grows out of the first handful of people. But the trick is how do you solidify that, codify that for scale? And it sounds like you guys did a great job at that to get to 350 people. We certainly tried, yeah. And, and I love what you said about filter function. I just finished this book called The Everything Store about the rise of Amazon. And uh, that's just a company that I think is really amazing. And, and one of the things that I, that I think is so interesting about their approach to culture was that they were, they were explicitly designing a culture that they knew wouldn't resonate with everybody, right? Like it's a very kind of hard-edged culture. There's, they, uh, you know, they make decisions through disagreement and argument. And, uh, and they're very overt about that with the expectation that there's maybe the majority of people are going to look at that and be like, that's not for me. Uh, and that that's a feature, not a bug. It's totally a feature. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's why I think Zappos and Amazon resonated well together. You know, the idea that Zappos would pay people $3,000 to leave after the first two weeks, just, you know, it was very clear. Like if you fit here, great. If you don't, good luck with something else. And that's totally fine. And it's, you know, as someone who I, I tend to be more of a people pleaser, although I'm working on, you know, it's better to, you know, some people resonate with you, some people don't. It's great. It's about fit. And that's better and getting clear about that at, at the core. So I, I really like that Optinot. I love it. That's great. I mean, you that's the first time I've actually talked to a founder where they actually had a name for people that worked for them that's tied to their core values. It's very cool. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess it's like you mentioned before, like cult. It occurred to me when you said that you can't spell culture without cult. Yeah. You know, Google has Googlers, you know, at Stripe. I think they're called Stripes. Like it, it helps create this sense of shared identity that, you know, uh, makes maybe makes it a little more cohesive and maybe makes it a little easier to go through these just brutal early years in a startup where there's so much chaos and there's so much stress and there's so much learning. You know, that, that shared identity is, I think, really helps. How did you develop through this whole stage? I mean, you know, it's a very different company when it's you and your co-founder to when it's a couple hundred people. I mean, how did you de- develop your own skills and how did you feel going through that process? That's a great question. You know, and the answer wasn't always great. I certainly, every, every founder, I think that, that goes through this transformation um, will have, to, will have to, to learn to scale, you know, in a trial by fire. And that was really tough. That was, that was tough in, for, in particular for me. I, you know, I think some of the things like when I, when I look over the years or there were kind of highlights and lowlights, um, highlights early on, and I still recommend this for early stage founders is, is work with a management coach, especially, especially if you've never worked as a manager before, you know, when, when we started the company, I, like I thought it, I thought an engineering manager was just like a really good engineer, you know, and that's actually not, it's not what an engineering manager is. It turns out it's this whole other job and that it's good. It's, you know, there's a whole, a wholly different set of skills that are important to develop in order to be a great manager. And that management is crucially important for building an organization. Most of that stuff, you just don't learn in school. You learn almost all of it by doing. And when you're growing, you know, when you're going a hundred miles an hour, it's really, really hard to learn as fast as you need to, in order to, in order to keep up, right? Like the job of the, once you reach product market fit and you switch from the exploration phase into into the scaling phase of growth, your, your only job as a founder is to learn as fast as you can 
so that you can over and over and over again, get good at something and then fire yourself and hire somebody who's better than you are, right? That over and over and over again. That's a, that's a really difficult thing to go through, kind of repeatedly feeling like you don't know what you're doing, you know, finally kind of getting to the part where you feel like maybe you've got the hang of it and then recognizing that that means it's time for you to find something else. You don't know how you, you know, you don't know how to do it and jump right back in. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I could, you know, that, that idea of having to become a toddler again or to become, you know, you, you all of a sudden you're the expert and then you have to lean back into being beginner mind and the, and it's scary when you, you know, you, you get comfortable when you know something, that idea of having to push yourself to the edge every time is not easy to do. I think I've heard people at some point you can kind of, you can kind of get used to the discomfort and recognize it. And that's a, a, a way of knowing that you're in that spot. But I, I think it's a little counter to human behavior. People like to get places where they're comfortable. It takes, you know, it takes some courage to push out to that place where you're uncomfortable and to have to do that over and over again is is pretty remarkable. I, you don't see that in a lot of people. I mean, it, it takes a lot of courage. I, I you know I do some coaching and it's number one challenge of this is pushing people to their edge and helping people overcome the fear to take that next step. Yeah, it's hard. It's yeah. really hard. You know, and and we grew very quickly, especially during our early years. And I actually personally got to a point uh, around four, almost five years in where I, I basically hit a wall. Like I, you know, I was, I was absolutely exhausted, really felt burnt out and was kind of hitting the limits of my, my capabilities at the time as a, as a leader and as a, as a large scale manager, you know, going from, going from kind of never having, never having been a manager to now managing a, a lot of people was, was very difficult. And it never felt like a totally natural transition for me. And at that point, I actually stepped away from the company. Um, I felt, you know, obviously very fortunate to even be able to do that, but stepped away from the company and took a three-month sabbatical and came back in a very different role. Came back and for at least a period of time did not have any direct reports focused, excuse me, only on, on kind of solving individual strategic challenges for the business where I could. And over time, I, I as the need arose, took on uh, direct reports. I took on teams uh, with focus on different parts of the business where there was a need for them. But that was that was kind of a point where I realized personally that the trajectory that I was on really was not well aligned with what I wanted out of my career and what I see as as my strengths. And there's another kind of hard transition for founders a lot of times. Uh, is is to be able to kind of take that step because you spend so long as a founder with this mentality of like, if I don't do this, it's not going to get done, right? And, and you basically, you don't get to decide what you focus on. The business decides what you focus on. And it's only after you get to a certain level of success, only if you're fortunate enough, are you able to take a step back and say like, what do I, what do I want to focus on, right? Like, what do I think I'm good at? Where do I think I can best apply my, you know, my talents? And I feel very fortunate that I, that we got to the place where that was possible for me. Didn't make it a very easy transition. It was still a very difficult transition, oh, but I can imagine. As with everything else, like this is all a process of of learning yourself over and over again, and, and that's what yeah. And you know, as you as you build, I mean, you have different levels of which this transformation happens. You know, you, you've gone through this, you built the company, you've stepped out. You know, now you're growing. Then you you get to a place where now you're like, okay, where are we going to take this company? And ultimately, you guys took it. To, to sale, what was some of the thought process behind taking it to sale? Because that's another big shift, right? I mean, you've 
spent all this time trying to prove this thing and build it, uh, you know, obviously if you have investors, there's implicit agreement that you're going to sell at some point, but you know, that's a, it's a huge decision for a founder to get to a sale. What, what was really the thought process behind the sale for you guys? So it's a great question. It was always something that we'd had in mind. I mean, it, you know, I, I think I'd be lying if it, if I said that it was our goal from the beginning, we, from early on really wanted to build an enduring standalone company. And I think to some extent you need to have that mentality in order to, to get anywhere, right? Because you, it's, it's, I'm a big proponent of long-term thinking. And I think that's one example where you need to have this long-term mindset in order to build anything substantial. And with Optimizely, like I mentioned before, there were certain structural challenges in the business that we struggled with and that I think were made more difficult by the fact that we were a standalone company. Experimentation software in particular, one of the things that makes it hard is that you need, in order to, to, to be successful in an organization, you need a deep connection to the technology they use to, uh, to, to deliver digital experiences, right? Like whether it's a website or a mobile application, if you want to run experiments on it, the, you know, your experiment platform needs to be able to change the button color or the headline, you know, or, or, or the, you know, the price or like whatever it is that you're experimenting on. So you need deep connections to the experience layer. And you also need deep connections to the data layer, right? In order to actually measure the impact of changing the price, you need to understand, did people buy in higher numbers or lower numbers? And what, you know, so you need, you need those kinds of deep connections. And because we were standalone experimentation software selling to, you know, a wide variety of companies with an even wider variety of technology under the hood, we, we kind of had to build with this integration first mindset. And Last year, when we started talking to potential acquirers, it became very clear that there was an opportunity with Episerver. This is the company that acquired Optimizely. And that part of the, part of the strategic value of that combination was that Episerver owns, for many of their customers, the this, this system of record for experiences. One of their pieces of flagship, one of the flagship products is a CMS, a content management system. And their customers use that content management system to decide source of truth, what the experience that their customers get is. And if you can integrate a, an experimentation platform more tightly with that system of record, it just becomes that much easier for the end user uh, to do cool things with, right? And so that was, that was really, um, that's where the opportunity came from. Kind of back to, you know, why did we end up deciding to, to pull the trigger? As it, you know, as the year progressed last year, you know, we got towards uh, early fall, and it started to look like this. There was a real potential for this to happen. We had to ask ourselves, like, is, you know, do we is is the path uh, as an independent company still viable? And you know, I still believe that the path as an independent company was viable, but I think the business would have had to change in some pretty fundamental ways in order to really produce something that was long term sustainable. And the real, you know, the reality was that. That's, that would have been a, another very long commitment. And given the opportunity to partner with a great organization now and, and kind of realize, hopefully realize that vision together versus going it alone, we ultimately made a decision that that partnership was the right way to go. Yeah, no, that's great. I appreciate you sharing the story. And I think one of the, the challenging things about that is, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense strategically. And then now here you are, you know, you, you've since left Optimizely, correct? That's and so, oh, I'm sorry. I'm no longer a full-time employee. I am consulting for the company. Okay. Okay. Great. But 
you know, your trajectory in the company has changed and, you know, a lot of identity, a lot of times your identity is wrapped up in the company. And now you, you presented with, you, know, you traded one asset for another, right? Like you, you get a good exit and then now what? And so I'm just kind of curious now what's, what's on the horizon for you, Pete, you know, you've moved to Reno. I, I want to hear, I want to hear why you moved to Reno, like kind of how you end up here, but, but more, you know, like you, you've created this new opportunity for yourself. So what's kind of, what's next for you? Short answer is I have no idea, Doug. I, you know, right now I'm I'm kind of taking a bit of time. As I mentioned before, I'm I'm still consulting for the organization, and I would like to take some time off and you know take some time to process what's what just happened. You know, it's time to maybe incorporate and, and recover a little bit. Ultimately, you know, I, I'd love I'd love to get back to this place where I'm just kind of driven again by kind of pure creative energy, which is my memory of, of some of those early days. Like I'd like to find a problem that I feel that kind of excitement about tackling again. And I feel like pouring in 22 hours a day into, but the reality is that right now I'm, I'm, I'm not in that place. I am, you know, I'm, I'm feeling very excited. I'm feeling very open. I feel like for the first time I can actually take time and, and kind of focus on, on meeting people. I feel, you know, much more open to new experiences and new people in a way that I haven't felt for a long time because there's just, more open space in my yeah, life. Yeah, more spacious. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, but I haven't really picked a direction to zoom in on yet. Well, I think, I mean, you made some directionality, right? You came, you came to Reno. So what was sort of the impetus for coming to Reno? Sure. There were a lot of reasons to come to Reno. And it's, it's interesting, this unique confluence of factors that I feel like, you know, if any one of these things were different, I'm not sure that we would have made this move or maybe we would have made it at a different time. But, you know, last year when the pandemic you know, when, when the pandemic set in and, and the Bay Area went into lockdown, life in the city got pretty difficult. And I mean, it was difficult for us. I can't even imagine what it was like to be a family with, with kids in a small apartment. It just my heart goes out to It's brutal. I mean, I, I'm, I've been on quarantine for the last 10 days and it's my first week in quarantine during the whole pandemic and it's brutal and it's only a week. I can, my brother's kids have been out of school for a year in California. So it, I can tell you, it's brutal. Yeah. Uh, so the city... San Francisco wasn't a really fun place to be. It was a, it was kind of a difficult place to be, and we were fortunate enough that we were able to to leave the city early in the year. Uh, so we moved to Truckee for uh, for the summer, which is a small town uh, near Lake Tahoe. For those of you who aren't familiar with the area, and, and uh, I've always I've always been big into the outdoors. A lot of hobbies in the outdoors, and and I loved it. Uh, my girlfriend, I think, was more excited about living in a city, and so. Reno, as the summer kind of went on and our lease ran up, Reno emerged as as kind of the clear candidate where it was the, it was the best of both worlds, right? You're in Reno, you're you're 30 minutes from the Sierra, and at the same time, you have all of the benefits of living in a in a growing and amazing city. That's how we get everybody. We you, you spend a little bit of time in Tahoe, and then you're like, wait a second, I, I either I don't like the snow or I want a little bit more city life, and then they all come down. So you just yeah, we got you. Through the same, we hooked you at the and same so way. And so you did, us. yeah. And I love the. Um, it's kind of funny some of the reactions that I've gotten. I've gotten over the the months when I when I've told people about the move is like you know for for folks that have spent any amount of time here they're like awesome Reno is so you know uh, but then for folks who haven't a lot of times you're like really Reno and uh, you know it's and I think it's because it's one of these it's one of these examples of expectations lagging reality where the image that people have in their head of, of Reno is kind of still a bunch of CD casinos that you can see from Highway 80, and 
And uh, the reality, of course, is is nothing like that, right? It's like this growing, vibrant, amazing city with a you know a great restaurant scene and a lot of young people, and it's um, you know it's 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 everything that makes a, a growing city fun and, and a wonderful place to live. And it's not super well understood yet, right? It still feels like this kind of hidden gem, and, and people here still have this. Maybe it's like a bit of an underdog mentality. They've got a lot of pride about Reno, and I love that part of it. But whoever, I think you mentioned this to me, maybe we met for the first time, like whoever came up with this branding of Reno Tahoe instead of yep. Reno was a genius. Like <laughs> hitching to that wagon is exactly the right thing. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, everybody knows Tahoe, not as many people know Reno. You kind of get people hooked into it. But I think one of the things that you were saying that it kind of comes back to almost the culture of your company is Reno fits for some people and it doesn't for others. And, you know, to be unapologetic about that, like you're either going to like it here or you don't. And if you don't, that's great. You can go to Miami, you can go to wherever. But Reno is great if if this is your jam and, you know, you're a climber, I'm a snowboarder, you know, love the outdoors. You want to be part of something exciting. It, and that and that's not for everybody. You know, that's yeah. cool. Like, yeah, that's good. Well, and it, I t- that totally resonates with me. And so you're right. I'm, I'm a, like a, a rock climbing is one of my hobbies. And I, I love that aspect. Like there's the access here is unparalleled. It's absolutely amazing to be this close to so much, you know, great rock. But beyond that, I'm just a really big believer in in the distributed work, right? In uh, the idea of, of kind of software eating the world everywhere in the world and not just in a, in a couple small concentrated tech hubs. And and if I if I choose to go down the, the path of entre- entrepreneurship again, if I if I start another company, you know, I'm I'm convinced that building a remote first culture is is the right way to go for so many reasons. And that was one of the that was one of the things, kind of watching the transformation that the entire industry went through in like a month, you know, when when COVID started was enough to convince me like, yeah, this isn't going away. Oh, no. And and going forward, like we're all working from home right now, of course, and, and we're all still working from home right now. Going forward, I don't think it's going to matter nearly as much where you live from a career standpoint as maybe it has in the past. And why not live close to what you love? And that's where I think this has been my belief. I mean, places like Reno that are a great, there are great places to live that have great quality of life will benefit in this global shift. I mean, we're already seeing it. I mean, obviously it's difficult to buy a house right now. There's a lot of movement here, all of those things, but that's fundamentally because it's a great place to live. And I think that's what people want. I mean, if you want to, the biggest challenge here was always having quality jobs. And now, you know, we have, we've seen a lot of new jobs come here, but then also you can kind of BYOJ, right? Like you can bring your own job here from <laughs> Google or whatever. I just made that up. You know, you could just do it. So, uh, you know, I, we're seeing an increase in remote work, all of those things. And what I'm, excited about is that will have a positive transformation on the community. I've seen this firsthand early days with this woman who moved uh, Carrie from Phoenix and her daughter was part of a robotics club in Phoenix. We didn't have one here. And so she started it. And so you, you start to see that outside influence in a positive way. I mean, one of the things that's important for us, just like it was to probably, you know, how you got opt-in knots connected is how do we integrate people into the culture? I mean, we love it here. We definitely want great outside ideas, but we also want to keep the thing, the culture strong. And I'm really looking forward to COVID relaxing so we can get all the new founders back. There's a bunch of great people I can't wait to introduce you to that I think you really love that a lot of them are transplants or locals that all share the same values you have. And, and just so you can get to be a more part of that, that overall community. It's just such a great, important thing for us as we build the community. I'm excited for COVID to end 
for that and and many other reasons. A million too, reasons. Doug. A million yes. reasons. Yes. <laughs> well, look. I, one last thing. I just I just really wanted to say. I kind of said this in the beginning, but I really appreciate the way that you have showed up in Reno. Not only have you you know chosen our community, but you've already gotten connected and involved in the seed fund. And I know that you are open to help and support on, on other entrepreneurs. And you know just by sharing your insight and wisdom, you're helping raise the bar for our community. So I just want to say thank you for uh, for coming here and, and just being awesome and bringing that mentality with you. Absolutely. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to meet other folks here that are doing things. And if I can help others avoid my mistakes, then I will work on that all day. I think it's great. That's awesome. Well, I will be calling on you, but thank you for your time. And uh, we'll get together here in the next two distant future for a beer or a climb or something. Cheers, Doug. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.